Hello, I'm Claire Doherty, the director of Arnolfini in Bristol. You're listening to the Imagine New Rules podcast. Hello, I'm here this afternoon with Marvin Rees. Marvin, um, I enjoyed your State of the City address a couple of weeks back here in Bristol. And I was really struck in uh, your speech about the way in which you spoke about a Bristol of the future, a city of the future. And it seemed to me that whilst you touched on a number of things that could be shared by any uh, global city, a vision of inclusiveness, a vision of building capability, a vision of distributing social capital across a city, that there was something very specific around Bristol and its strengths, um, arts and culture and creative industries being at the heart, the rocket fuel, if you like, of Bristol. And I wondered, when you talk about a one-city plan for the city, what do you see the role of arts and culture being in that, and, and how does that link to, to that, that vision for a future Bristol? Well, I'd see its involvement on a number of uh, levels for the one-city plan. I think, first, there's, a, there's an absolute core that this is a major part of Bristol's economy. And that seems like a very functional relationship, but let's get the functionality, stuff out of place. It, it's, it's a brand, it's a major employer, it's a major offer in terms of export. It brings people and tourism to the city. We know that, and we need to capture that and, um, and keep it live and cultivate it and watch it grow. But the other piece in terms of the One City Plan is often, I've talked about the plan in terms of a story. I said, it's, we can talk about strategies and plans, but I'm saying let's, let's write the story of Bristol today that we want to live over up to 2050 and beyond as well, but let's get it up to 2050. And I would expect, and that in some sense comes from my journalistic background, you take complex issues, you try to turn them into stories so that people can access them. If we just put an Excel sheet on the table with a, chart with a load of numbers in it and targets, people aren't going to engage with that. What we want in that city plan is to have something that's measurable and deliverable and so forth. But it's, it's, it's saying to the people of Bristol and the institutions of the city, this is our story that we've agreed to live. Mm. Now let's live it. And I think people in the arts and the creative cultural sector will have their hands on the tools and the practices that, that, that help the city tell a story. Mm. We write stories, we tell them about individuals, communities um, and the city. And I think that will, be, that will be invaluable. And I'm minded actually of a quote by Ben Oakery that, that has always stayed with me. If you want to debase a people, undermine the stories they tell about themselves. Mm. And just tells me how critical it is that we have an, an, an ability to tell a story um, and that we have a story uh, to tell. And there's another, if I can just do another quote, <laughs> there's a proverb that says, without a vision, the people perish. If we don't have a story, all we are is a group of people that buy stuff and then die. Mm. We have to have something that we're a part of. And I think the cultural sector can be such a huge part of of helping the city and work out its story, its meaning, and then and then go on that journey of living it. It's so interesting that, isn't it? That that that, that job that artists have, and whatever art form—theatre, visual arts, dance, performance, music—that um, there's a there's a sense in this city that there's a lot of untold stories to be told. Um, that there is a there is a difficult history, a contested history, isn't there? To delve into, to unpick and see what that means now in, in contemporary life. Um, but there's also something interesting. It reminds me of a quote. Um, we're going ha- to have a game of quotes now. I can <laughs> yeah, feel it. Can I, I can feel that. <laughs> by, a, by an artist called Theaster Gates, who did a wonderful project here in Bristol and is from Chicago. And he said, I make the thing that makes the thing. 
And by that, I th- what he meant is that in, in his work, he models a future possibility. So I'm quite interested in the idea not only of artists being storytellers, of holding a mirror to Bristol, but creatively helping the city imagine its future. And so, so I think there's, there's something very interesting in what you were saying in terms of storytelling between helping us look at the untold stories and, and working out what story the city has to tell of itself, but also thinking about future possibilities and how, does, how, do, how do artists imagine that. So I, so I was wondering about, for example, you've told in the past of your own um, experiences of teachers, for example, and the, the interventions that they made and the differences on, their, on your life. And I was wondering, your, in your own life, were there particular moments where um, you encountered uh, perhaps someone in the teaching environment or an artist where you felt um, that it showed you a future possibility or maybe it was in sport and culture around that? It opened something up for you. Yeah, so um, one is I like what you said there. It really draws on me because when you talked about we, it's not just about holding the mirror up to what we are. That's stagnant. Mm-hmm. If we just held a mirror up to Bristol, all we'd do is we say, look, you've got a great story to tell, but you've got 20, 25% of your kids in poverty, 25,000 houses in fuel poverty, you've got a problem with hunger, educational inequalities. You know, we, yeah. It's not just about holding the mirror. It's about grabbing, it's about grabbing the city by the scruff of the neck yeah. and saying, what story do we want to tell? How do we want to be able to describe ourselves in, in 2, 5, 10, 15, 25, 30 years' time? Because if we agree what we want to be able to say about ourselves, then we begin to align ourselves to deliver that. If we have not crafted our own sense of our story, we're just going to be bumped around by the world. We'll just be, we'll, we will just live the story that's sold to us and we're encouraged to live by advertisers and marketers. And mm-hmm. we'll, be not, we'll, be, we'll be void of, mm-hmm. of substance, you know? We'll just be our GDP and we need to be more than that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 as a young person growing up, uh, I suppose if you look at the, the data, we're the most socially, one of the most socially mobile countries in OECD. The story that was pre-written for me uh, was, I am the, you know, I am the product of an unmarried single white mother on benefits, right? Um, and I should be the product of that. I should be in that status. As soon as your parental background before your talent and ability is the single most effective indicator of where you end up in life. But I think there were a number of interventions for me. One was a really good teacher, Bob Jennings. I had a great teacher in uh, a guy, called, uh, a teacher called Mr. Jenkins. Um, I joined a boxing club, Broad Plain, Dennis Tinscombe, Jimmy Hill, Jimmy Robottom. Gave me self-esteem, a sense of achievement. And actually, what I would say is, you know, my my mum and my grandparents gave me a sense of stability. And I got I got two cousins, uh, Dennis and Anthony, who were. I don't think they realised just how significant they were in my life. So we were based in Easton, but they would walk everywhere. So we would walk from Montpellier to Blaise Castle, mm. you know, play for the day and then walk home, mm. surviving on a packet of crisps. Now, we would go to the Downs and collect conkers. So where I wasn't trapped in my area. So I had a sense of this big world out there. One of the things that I got in touch with quite early through them in part was a sense of the infinite, mm. a sense of mystery. Mm. The world was not just money and cars and me, women, which is what, which was what pushed at me, and and that sense that even if I didn't know how to articulate it, 
I sensed that there was a story beyond the world that was merely being presented to me by the people I saw around me that I wanted to get access to. I wanted to get access to that mystery. So your horizon really shifted as a result of your encounter with them. Yeah, I didn't know what yeah. was out there. No. I didn't know what was out there, but I knew there was more. And would you have had any sense at that time of uh, a place like Arnolfini or Colson Hall or the theatre in the centre of town here? Would you, w- what would you have felt about those places? What, what year was it? What year would it have well, been? Well, in the 80s. Well, there was mid-80s. A, I mean, there's a, there's a fundamental reality, right, that I was a mixed-race kid, black kid, in Bristol in the 1980s. It's racially fractured, class fractured. We didn't come into the centre. Mm. We went to town, um, but we, were, we would rarely go into the centre, particularly on weekends. It was physically dangerous to do so, right? Um, and then there's the class divide. This is just not our world, mm. and we didn't feel welcome now. They say it's paranoia, I say it's reality. So we didn't interact. Colston Hall was on our map because the school always did a Christmas concert down Colston Hall. Yeah. But I never participated in the concert. Mm. Um, I just went because the rest of my class was going and then we just sit mucking around while they were all singing because mm. we didn't think singing um, was for us. So the old Vic wasn't part of my world. Um, I do remember taking someone on a date to the old Vic and thinking, now I'm showing my sophistication. <laughs> when I left university, I thought, okay, I've made it. I'm going to show how, how cool I am. It was a terrible play, by the way. <laughs> it was Did really inappropriate. Right. Well, it wasn't romantic. It was this kind of critique of capitalism and exploitation of the poor. That's the beginning of yeah, your, of your but, political life, isn't it? Yeah, but <laughs> you owe it to it was a Vic. bad choice. <laughs> But yeah, that, that just wasn't part of my world. And, it, and like I said, it was that interplay of race and class that locked us out yeah. um, and just didn't exist for us. It's interesting, isn't it, thinking about those barriers, um, those barriers to feeling like it's your place, you mm. know, and part of them are physical barriers. Something I'm very interested in here at Arnolfini is what, what could we change that doesn't make you feel like you're walking into a high-end um, sort of merchandise store, you know. Mm. That, but it's it's more, it's so much more than that, isn't it? It's it's to do with familiarity. I'm really interested in what you're saying there, which is about friends and family guiding you through, you know, and and the experiences you have at school. I think I think my experience of Bristol is that things have changed a great deal in 30 years in terms of how organisations are working across the city. But I think there's so much more to do. Um, and, and part of that is also really thinking about how culture has changed, the experience of culture has changed now. Mm. So, um, you know, from the visual arts point of view, for example, so many more people, you know, you have a phone in your hand and mm. you're capable of co-creating your own culture. You know, so that, that means that the sort of traditional Victorian institutions of the museum and the gallery and the theatre are fundamentally out of date in terms of how they mm. operate. But I think, I, I think what's very exciting about what you were saying there is about horizons. It's an interesting... I mean, the arts and cultural sector is an interesting one because, and this is a, maybe a bit hard to hear for some, they, they, a lot of these people would be politically progressive. You know, if they were around at the time of Vietnam, they would have been on the anti-Vietnam war protests. They would have supported the civil rights movement. Um, they would have supported Paul Stevenson. They would have had sympathies in the 1980s for the uh, the riots. They would have they would stand up, you know. They're probably, you know, you can tick CND. You can tick all these progressive political movements. Um, but there's a couple of things about it that uh, are interesting. One is Martin Luther King pointed out that 
It's easier to deal with open hostility than it is to deal with misunderstanding. It's letter from Birmingham jail. He points this out. Mm -hmm. And while we, while we have politically progressive people, what they, what they have power within mm -hmm. is a sector that is probably one of the most racially and class segregated sectors in the city. Mm -hmm. And we have to ask some hard questions about that. And how do you, how do you think that changes? Have you, seen, have you seen examples in other cities of how that potentially changes across sectors actually across sectors what what is it that unlocks and changes that diversity right i mean i i'd say i, I particularly but the environmental movement is a classic victim of that it's not just culture right? it's environmental movement which mm -hmm. has not dealt with its race and class segregation mm -hmm. and 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 um exclusion um i i wouldn't say i've seen it successfully dealt with actually mm -hmm. but what i would say is that it, none of these things happen in an abstract Right. So I would say there is a there is a responsibility on the cultural sector to be more diverse and all that and recognizing that nice progressive people who are in positions of management and power and leadership can't just say, well, I support the right issues. Mm -hmm. They've got to say, how am I going to distribute my power? Mm -hmm. But that happens within a wider context. And and so while there's a challenge to the sector to get stuff done. The graciousness towards the sector from the rest of us is you don't do that outside of a wider economic context that drives inequality and drives the inequalities in power. So you're you're working with a context in which we have inequalities in the education system, in the housing uh, sector, you know, in health. And you you can't deliver unless those other areas deliver too, which is why we talk about a city plan and a city approach to this. Um, the interdependencies and actually you bring benefits to all those sectors, but they they help you deliver um, too. But no, I. I it, it, it is one of those uh, real challenges. And sometimes I feel like I'm the, uh, um, you know, look at me, I, I am what I am. I mean, it's, again, it'd be interesting to explore. I'm a mixed race guy. I know what it is to be black. I know what it is to be chased down the streets by people. Um, I'm going to use the term because I don't know your podcast policy, but I've been, you know, you get, it wasn't unusual to be called an N word and be chased down the street and to, to know you can't go to certain parts of Bristol. That's my experience of growing up here. Um, but and then here I am walking with confidence and a sense of I can be here in some of these major institutions but I will share with you that when I go in there I don't always feel like I belong yeah. I walk in there with a in the same way that sometimes I, I own my British passport mm -hmm. I know that some people think I'm not really fully British mm -hmm. but I own this passport and I'm going to have it and I, yeah. I don't always feel welcome in these cultural venues but I have every right to be here and I'm going to be here for me and for everyone else who comes from backgrounds like me. It's also to do with relevance, isn't it, as well? I mean, there's, there's very interesting things about codes and behaviours in, in, mm. in, in all sorts of venues. Like if I walked into a football stadium, for example, because I'm not a great football fan. Mm. Sorry to tell you that. But, uh, <laughs> That's but, right. I won't ask you which team you but support. I'm not, but I used to have a boyfriend that was a mad Arsenal <clears> fan <throat> who I was with for 10 years. So I could name every, yeah. every football player on the team for about um, in the early 90s. But... Um, but but I feel like that when I walk into a football stadium in that I don't know, like, what the hell do I do? What am I supposed to do? You know? um, so I completely get that, and, and, and that's not about race or class. That's about, that's about interest and following and understanding codes and behaviours. Maybe a bit of agenda, and too. Right? Agenda, exactly. Yeah. So I, I, I think there's, there's something very interesting about that, about how we open those things up. But I think it's also about, um, f for me, that it has to also be a, 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 about... There's a very interesting analogy um, that is, has been put forward about um, museums 
and uh, it's that we're in the, fir- the third age of the museum. So if you think of museums in the first age being um, arbiters of taste, so they were, um, they were sort of uh, houses of, of precious treasures that you could go and admire. And the second age is uh, the one we've just been through, which is about an understanding of public engagement and outreach. So it's mm. about understanding we can't just be arbiters of taste, but we need to engage with broad and diverse audiences. And the third age, which I think is where we're going, is that the museum is in civic life, that it's a part of people's mm. lives, and that that's what I feel with Onofrini, is that it should be a part of people's lives, um, as opposed to us sitting here wanting to engage with a set of audiences out there. Really. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things. I'm just reflecting on what we were talking about. I'm not, I don't think we should see some of the tensions that arise when people who don't as always feel fully like they belong turn up. That's a bad thing. Martin Luther King talks about creative tension. Artists will mm. be into that, right? Mm. Mm. <laughs> it's not all about turning up and right. No. Everyone feels comfortable yeah, and yeah. let's just sit down and get on. Let's, <laughs> let's get these tensions out. And again, is that something that the art, arts community could begin to help? When we think about how do you create a coherent city story? One of the things I think that cities offer right now is that, and it, that national governments cannot is how you craft the narrative that you can all be a part of. Mm-hmm. I think national governments get stuck in this one-dimensional uh, like t- conversation around identity and belonging, mm-hmm. like British. You know, there's no national government, no British national government can have a conversation around identity that doesn't make me feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I've got white heritage, I've got white blood, <laughs> Anglo-Saxon probably back in the day, goes back, you know, but they make me feel very uncomfortable. At the city level, we talk about multidimensional identities. I'm a mixed race man, you know, I don't know what my family involved in back in the day, Ireland, Wales, England, Jamaica, you know, my blood crosses boundaries. I've had to contend with that, um, that position of um, identity limbo, in, in particularly in my teens when it become like, who am I? How do I fit onto any shelves? I don't fit, Where do, you know, who am I? What's my place? I'm a object of suspicion to some, a rejection to others. And all that. There's more and more mixed heritage people talking about that now. Um, but that, those tensions, those difficulties have been a source of fantastic questioning for me. And I think if we didn't hide from those tensions and you brought it into public domain, there's something really rich. Uh, in that sense, that could be a massive role of the creative community around, mm-hmm. around civic leadership. Mm-hmm. Because this question of belonging is a very hard one to measure. Mm-hmm. But we know that if we don't have it, society falls apart. Yeah, and I, I, I really agree with you around unsettling as well. I think, I think it's something... I, I directed this arts organisation called Situations, and a big part of what we did for many years was to work on public art and public art policy in lots of different locations, all across the seas and overseas and mm. in the UK. And one of the things that was the biggest problem was that when we came to um, often being asked to come up with a public artwork for a city to commemorate something or to tell a story of a place, um, the kind of place identity that most tourist departments or city um, local authorities wanted to buy into was uh, well-being, was a a sort of glowing notion Mm. of a particular place. And, of course, most places are not like that. Geographer uh, Doreen Massey described places in a constant state of becoming. it's never it's never static it's never stable you know it's a conflicting set of conditions and meeting points between people and it seems to me that what artists do is that they lift the lid on that um if you're going to really talk about bristol there is not one bristol you and and it's not the the 
the Bristol necessarily. And that's okay. Images. It's totally okay. And so interesting for artists to get their teeth done to. So we're part of something called the Global Parliament of Mayors. We're bringing that to Bristol uh, next year. Mayors from all over the world. Ben Barber, fantastic talk. I suggest looking it up on, uh, on uh, TED Talks, When Mayors Rule the World. Uh, but when I met Ben, um, the guy that's with him said, cities are nodes in flows. Nice. And by definition, that means they're in flux. Yeah. It's not this stagnant sense of identity that national governments are looking for. That's why we're here, isn't it? We yeah. sit at the intersection of financial flows, people movements, cultural flows, um, you know, the climate changing on around. We constantly have stuff flowing through us that changes the nature of what we are at any point in time. And that's okay. And do you think, are you hearing that from the global parliament of mayors? Are you hearing that, that what's needed is a depth a depth to experience, a depth to cultural experience in cities across the world? Well, I've only been in a year and a half. Um, I think, I think, in my first interaction with Ben Barber, who sadly passed away in, 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 in April, Ben's talking a lot about the, the weaknesses of our current global order. Uh, you know, the uh, neoliberal model, you know, it's based on owning stuff. It's, it's pursuing meaning in brands, the standardization of global demand. I mean, one of the things I pointed out was outside of that is, uh, you know, people talk about migration as though it's a threat to our identity. I said, well, Pizza Hut's not British. Levi's ain't British. The, the biggest loss of what might be uniquely British is multinationals, standardizing demand, standardizing taste so they can take advantage of you know, mass production and, and, and so forth. So uh, I, I think there is, I, I can't speak for all the major mayors, but I, I'd imagine when you get down to that, that local level, um, you are thinking, how, what's, our, what's our story in a very, very real way? As a local, as a city leader, you're looking people in the eye, you're interacting with real people, you are part of that story. You're not in an abstract looking down on it. Does that mean as a mayor that you have to do things that, like how do you, how do you resist globalization though how do you resist that taking over I mean, bristol being describing itself as self-describing itself as a city of independence you know how does what what's the way in which you encourage this not to be taken over and become kind of banal like any other city across across the uk well it depends on what you mean by globalization as well because that's a contested term mm. i think being international is an asset mm. 180 countries of origin 92 languages in some sense you could say that was globalization 40, 45 yeah. 50 religions true. in a city um so that kind of people-based cultural development and dynamism is okay the stuff that we receive from being marketed and manual, you know, that's more problematic because there's an emptiness that goes with everyone looking for an identifying. Look at me. You know, I, I always felt, even growing up, I've become aware of this. When you see someone head to toe in brand names, what is your name? You know, who are you? You are getting status from being branded by one of the major uh, corporations. That's how you find your status. You know, and that's a, that's a sadness. And I'm not saying it's, it's on everyone, but it's something that has always made me feel uncomfortable when I've, when I've seen that going on. Um, how we how we protect ourselves against that i don't know i maybe maybe it is in getting back to where we started what's our story going to be so that rather than being known for just growing the economy we are known as the city that ended fuel poverty we're known as a city that 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 bucked the trend in social immobility so that your talent and your work gets you on we're known as a city when everyone can afford to live and have a home and live in community we're the safest city we're a city where kids speak a second language as a standard offer, every kid gets to look at the stars in a, in a sky not polluted by streetlights because we get them out into the countryside. You know, we're a city that is developing in a way that is 
that is that is protecting environmental standards. We're we're a city of sanctuary. You know, how, what story do we want to tell? How do we craft that? Uh, is surely the surest way of protecting us against just becoming the unconsciously becoming what we become mm. because we dropped off the other end of some consumer convo conveyor belt. And so in that sense, sort of artists, artists being at the table or working in every part of the city uh, is crucial, isn't it? That it's not that we don't have showcases of arts and culture that are produced from elsewhere, but that what we're doing is that arts and culture and the way in which we tell stories, the way in which we imagine the future is embedded right the way across the city in the civic life of the city because that feels to me to be the rocket fuel that we need. We yeah. need inspiration and creativity, don't we, to imagine that future. You have to be able to tell stories. Yeah. If I go back to Ben Okri, Ben Okri says the parables of Jesus were more powerful than the miracles of Jesus. <laughs> you know, the ability to tell stories about ourselves. And, and look, I can go to places, you could say to a kid, what do you want to be? They won't be able to tell you. They won't be able to tell you what they want their story to be in their life. They'll have no tools. Mm. Um, whether that is because they have no concepts, because they're, they're scared of putting something out in the public domain in case they fail to achieve it. But once you lose your ability to tell a story about yourself, who you are, where you come from, where you're going, there's, there's an incredible poverty that makes you incredibly vulnerable to someone telling you what you are, mm. rather than you find, you know, rather you articulate what you are. And that's for individuals, communities, and for, for the city. I mean, this plays over into something that we've been grappling with as a local authority, that um, I've been talking about this thing called asset-based community development, right? So we have a history, and I think partly it's a product of the politics in the city, but not, not good and evil doesn't begin and end with the way we do party politics, right? There's a, there's a very impoverished uh, element of the political conversation in the city at the moment that, that, that disproportionately focuses on the city council. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's silly. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, within our political conversation, some of the councillors just keep saying, well, I represent people they're the most deprived people they've got nothing and they don't know and i'm going to defend this service for the next 20 years and that's where i'm going to make my name i went to a meeting with a councillor and, and with in the community and she opened up the meeting by just telling me how pathetic the community was you know they haven't got this they haven't got that they've got family breakdown the kids don't learn at school they're sick the transport's poor i was like geez man, if you're in this community by the time you got to the end of someone telling you a story about you like that you think i can't do anything for myself so i said well, before we started going down there, because the idea was to bring me there to solve their problems. Yeah. I said, before we go down, let's talk about what we have got. Anyway, they had someone in the community who was organizing visiting older people. They had someone who was organizing street parties. Um, they had a church that just took on a community development worker that was looking to engage. They had a community center that had been going for ages that was looking for volunteers. They had a great space. By the time we left, they weren't asking me to come back. They were saying, let's get together and work out how we use the assets we have got. So you can tell different stories about people. I can tell you a story that impoverishes you. And then by that sense, I make my own power over you because I become the solution to your problem. Or we can start to tell stories that empower people. Now, what that doesn't mean is that we avoid injustices. I'm not going to rose tint it and pretend that if you just think good things about yourself, you're going to make it. That's Ricky Lake politics. It's nonsense. The world is unfair and unjust. But I get really irritated when people just describe people as you know, pathetic. In fact, I would suggest if we, if we want to find the solutions to resilience, let's go to some of the most impoverished areas and visit those people who can get up every day knowing that they're going to face poverty, knowing that they're, they're going to have a tough day, but they can get up and they can face the day. Surely you'll find the source, you'll find the secrets of resilience and strength in those people who face challenge every day and stay alive.
It's so interesting, that idea of distributed leadership, you know. I, it really appeals to me, that idea that I've always resisted this the deficit model of, of, of the arts, which is, look, we target a community because we regard them to be deprived of cultural experiences and we go and work there and deliver cultural experience to them. Um, because, because, as you've said, what it doesn't do is value assets that are already there or experience are there. So I, I wonder in this city whether we need a, a, a more of an idea of an exchange of expertise. Mm. You know, so it's about saying what could we do together that we couldn't do apart. So imagine if there's an international art, world-class artist that comes to Bristol. I want them to have the opportunity to work with a group of people in Bristol that haven't ever had that opportunity before, but have also their own expertise, their own knowledge. I mean, um, very interesting project by Suzanne Lacey with Noel West Media Centre. Mm. Over 10 years, University of Local Knowledge is a brilliant example of this. Mm. An internationally renowned artist, but working with residents right the way across the Noel West mm. on their knowledge. Um, and so instead of having a sort of deficit model, it's much more about saying, what happens when you bring in an extraordinary creative thinker and it unlocks something that was already there? Mm. But it perhaps the, the other point is that the slight danger is this resistance to outsiders sometimes we also see, which is that we need visitors, we need international artists to come and to make things here that we could never have imagined without them. So that there's, I, I think that exchange of expertise is, is kind of interesting in that. Um, and, but I think I might suggest that a part of people's ability to cope with, with new things comes from them coming, getting confident in their own story. Yeah. If I have no story, or then I probably would be quite defensive about someone else coming in and start because I'm thinking, oh wait, there, you're telling me what to do. You've got, you know, you've got your narrative, you've got all this, and now you're coming in to see me. But actually, if I'm sure of who I am, I can cope with difference. So, what do you see as being the ways in which that confidence is built? What, what? I mean, part of that is some of the work that you're doing with Learning City Partnership and thinking about one city plan of a sector-wide kind of way of really building capability and confidence across the city. What are the other ways you see that happening? How will it happen in Bristol? Yeah. If my children are born disproportionately likely to end up in prison, mental health, institutions, under education attainment, earn less money, not own their own home, not have any assets, there's always going to be a thing. <laughs> Um, and that will go for issues of race and class. So I think until we are offering genuine kind of equality, and I do think it starts with economics and political power, then all that social stuff is, is hard to catch up on. At the same time, we can't wait for that political and economic equality before we start dealing with the, the social and the cultural and so forth, because the two are interdependent. And if we don't do the cultural stuff, then it's disproportionately the poorest people who you miss out the most, right? So Marvin, if I was to ask you what would your rule for a, a new 21st century Centre for Contemporary Arts be, what would you say? Understand that what they are not is just a place to showcase art, but they actually contribute to the placemaking for good and for ill and for underachievement. And just the beginning of that understanding, I hope, will kind of open the door to... Uh, to a whole different way of, of working, know that they are part of the story, they are part of the play shaping. And if I might sneak another one in, you know, the rule is not to be afraid of tension. 
you know, not to be afraid of rejection because we want those creative, we want those creative tensions um, in the city. But what we want are people with the skills to be able to cope with tensions so that they are creative and not destructive. Marvin, thanks very much. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Imagine New Rules. All the podcasts in this series are available for download at arnolfini.org.uk. Ensure you're notified of future episodes by following Arnolfini on SoundCloud.